Let's look at the 39th chapter of Genesis. Give you a little bit of a backdrop if you're just jumping in with us. We've been studying Genesis now for a good while, over the last couple of years. We took a, a long break, a pause through pandemic, through First Peter. And now as we've come back, we realize that the story of Genesis has taken a turn. It focuses on the life of Joseph. He is a beloved character in Scripture. Uh, there is a lot to commend him. Uh, there is a curious, there's a curious undergirding of his entire life of the sovereignty of God that comes more full into view as we see his life unfold. And it's that sovereignty of God, his ability to work in spite of and even through human bumbling and fumbling and sinning, that we take the theme of this whole section on Joseph's life, God meant good. And what we're going to discover is that as Christians, we have to have a category for God. In fact, we're hopeless if we don't have this category. We must have a category wherein God can work, oftentimes silently, quietly, behind the scenes, and He can work in spite of all of humanity's best efforts to thwart Him. And that times when suffering comes and difficulty comes, it does not mean that God has abandoned us. Sometimes He's doing His best work. That's the conviction that we have. Sometimes God is doing His best work. Now, I don't want to create, and this is something we should avoid in Joseph, I don't want to create an idol out of us finding the surprise twist ending at the end. Joseph's story is somewhat unique because we get to see what God was doing behind the scenes. For many of us, He's simply working and the joy we're going to get is that one day we'll be in His presence forever in heaven. Not that your, your greatest joy, and I just want to say this, your greatest joy is not that one day you'll discover the background of how everything works out temporally. That can become an idol, and I've been there. In the midst of my suffering, I've wanted answers, and I just thought if I had an answer, all my suffering goes away. That's a false idol. It's a bad trap. So in Joseph's life, though, we do see the way that God is working, and we're going to read today, I think, a breath of fresh air. This is why it's a breath of fresh air. There's going to be sin involved. That's not a surprise to anybody who's been following along in Genesis. This is about fallen humanity. There's going to be sin involved, but at least it's not directly the sin of the hero or the, the person of the story that we're most concerned about. We're going to, I believe, become endeared to Joseph, and at least in this case of Psalm 39, more than any of the rest of the story, we can say, Joseph, thank you. You're someone we can emulate. So there's sin involved, but at least it's not his. So that being said, we're going to look at temptation and sin and the way that God is with us in these moments through this chapter. If you have a Bible with you or a screen, I'm sure they're going to be on the one in the back. I want to encourage you to follow along. I'm going to start reading in the first verse of Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39 says this, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. 
But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were, with, who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison had paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. I want to ask that you pray with me. Uh, this is always the tempting moment to have this be a spectator moment. Uh, but I, I hope you believe this, that more than my words, more than my ability to explain that what you need most is the Spirit of God to help you to understand His Word and then to apply it to your circumstance. And that's going to be a miracle when it happens. I mean that. If you're going to benefit from me talking for the next number of minutes... We're all waiting on a miracle is what, we're, is what we're doing. And I don't even mean that in a self-deprecating way. I mean it as deeply spiritually as I can. So let's cast ourselves together on God's Spirit. Lord, you've been good to us. You're with us. You've given us your word. We've experienced the truth that you've given us through Scripture. We've seen it in the, down through the ages in the church and we're here again now, listening, and we've read, we've considered Scripture. So, Spirit of God, would you move in our midst? Would you make this word, these words, living and active for us? I pray that whatever comfort, whatever conviction, whatever change needs to happen in us, that you would bring those things about. I pray, God, that you would be kind to us, that my words could be of benefit, of help, but then ultimately that you would form us into the image of Jesus because that's your will for our lives. I pray, God, for a bond of peace and unity in our, in our midst. I pray for an ability to, to have humility and for a spirit of submission to Scripture, not as a judge over it. We're grateful for this day, for these moments, stir in us gratitude. And then in all of these ways, we'd be expectant that you want to, to help us. And so that's our prayer. That's our, that's our praying. That's our prayer. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen.
I want to talk about four different scenes as a way to kind of, I just read a whole chapter, so I want to break it up into scenes. Uh, by scenes, you know, if you're a theater person, you might get the idea that there's a scene change and uh, there's a sort of different theme that happens. In this case, I want to talk about these four themes under the heading of the Lord with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. I think that's the dominant thing we're going to see in this passage, but he's with him through a number of different scenes. The first one I'm just going to call success. It's roughly verses 1 to 6. It repeats itself, of course, throughout the whole passage, this idea of Joseph's success, but we're going to focus on it in the first scene, the Lord with Joseph, basically what we're going to call success, and it's worldly in a sense, but we want to consider it. Then starting in verse 7, down through verse 10, And then really, I suppose, bleeding into the next section, but I'm going to call 7 to 10 a scene of temptation. And all of us, hopefully, are going to have enough experience with our understanding of our own souls to be able to consider temptation. What does that look like? Then we're going to see, and this is going to become common in Joseph's life, but an idea, a scene of betrayal. He's betrayed. Nothing of his own doing, nothing that he deserves, and yet he experiences suffering and accusation and difficulty, and we're going to try to figure out, well, what is God doing, and what does it mean that he's with him in betrayal? And then finally, there's a scene, what I would just call of of being sustained. The Lord is with Joseph despite all of this. I mean, in some ways, it's just misery that the Lord, who is with him, sustains him. He doesn't end him. He doesn't fall apart, but in fact, he is sustained and keeps on keeping on. So those are the scenes, and I want to walk through them with you to help consider and to try to think about, well, what can we learn from this chapter? I'll just comment by noting that chapter 1 is really a throwback. If you're reading through Genesis, chapter 38, we looked at last week the line of, of Judah, his lineage. And I have to say line of Judah carefully because those of you who know your Bibles know that, of course, Jesus, there's significance to this because Jesus from the line of Judah will become the lion of Judah. And so when I, what we saw in 38, though, was strictly his line. Chapter 38 was an excursion. It was kind of a, a little bit of an offshoot to Judah from the story of Joseph. Talks about his lineage, his children, all the sin that's entailed there. And then chapter 39 goes back to the end of 37. I don't need to remind you that where we left off Joseph, he had just been unthinkably betrayed by his brothers. He's imprisoned and he's being carted off to Egypt. So we left that thinking, well, what is going to happen with Joseph? And I mean this in a couple of ways. What's going to happen with him physically But then more than that, what is happening with his soul? What must he be struggling with? Is he saying things like, God, where were you? What is happening to me? How could this be? We wonder about him personally. Where is he at in the midst of this? And it gets picked up back in the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 39. I want to mention something that could be easy to gloss over. about. I believe that Genesis wants to paint a picture of long-suffering. And Joseph, just so that we get an idea that we empathize with him and realize how difficult this life is for him in many ways. And here's the detail. We learn that Potiphar, who's a captain of the guard, purchases him from the Ishmaelites who purchased him. Joseph's life is so far out of control that not only has he suffered, gone from a son of favor, to being betrayed by his brothers, to being sold not once but then twice. I told someone the other day that Sometimes when life's really out of control, I feel like I'm in the middle of a game of Plinko. You know Plinko from The Price is Right? You never heard of this game? It's a game where someone has to drop this little round disc 
and it's an entire board just of, of pegs that come out. And the funny thing about Plinko is it just plinks back and forth, it makes the noise, and it goes down all over, and you don't know where it's going to end up. Now, even in the worst of circumstances, I think sometimes what we feel like is that we're still the one playing Plinko, but what we do is we take all of our plans and our ideas, you know, the best laid plans, and we drop them on the board, and then the, the thing that's out of our control is we say, oh, look at that, it bounces everywhere. But in that scenario, at least we're still playing. Joseph probably felt less like the person playing Plinko and like the Plinko itself. I think that thing is called the Plinko. I could be wrong. Those of you who are prices right experts, one, what are you doing with your life? Two, you could correct me later. But the idea here, imagine Joseph going out to check on his brothers, feeling like he, he probably has a hopeful future. He thinks, I'm my dad's favorite. I've gotten all this good stuff. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to have influence and power. He gets betrayed. He gets sold not once, but twice. He's off in a foreign land. He probably feels like he is bouncing around out of control. This is, I believe this is a theological term, a rigmarole. His life is careening literally out of his control. And I say this because these details can be so easy to gloss over that we oftentimes do not dive into, well, what would it look like in the soul of a person who's experiencing this? Joseph doesn't have the rest of the story. He's not in a caravan excited that he's playing the part of Joseph. He doesn't get to pull out the manuscript and say, oh, when's the part come where I tell my brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He doesn't know the end of the story. He's experiencing patient suffering. He doesn't know. And that's important because many of us are going to experience suffering the same way. We don't get to carry around the manuscript. We're not playing a part as far as we know this won't go well. And that's where Joseph's at. However, verse 2 gives us, I believe, a theme of the chapter. In fact, a theme of the entire story of Joseph's life. With this statement that is broad and deep and rich, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, that may seem small, but it's not small. It's probably as big a thing as could ever be said concerning God's interaction with you and me. What was the blessing that Adam and Eve had in the garden that God was walking with them in the cool of the day? What is severed because of sin? Our relationship, our withness with God. I I made that word up. What is the promise of the gospel that one day He will be our God and will be His people? What is the promise that Jesus leaves the church when He says, go into all the world and make disciples? Baptize them, teach them to deserve all that commanded you, and I am with you till the end of the age. To have God with you To have a firm conviction to say, yes, I'm careening around, I have become the Plinko, but have a conviction to say that God is with me and nothing can separate me from Him is not a small throwaway statement. It's not a nicety. It is the hope of our lives. If God is with you, this might sound like the Bible, if God is with you, if God is with me, if God is with us, who can stand against And that is the theme of Joseph's life. Things aren't going well, necessarily, but God is with him. And what is the offshoot, or what happens, the result, the fruit of God being with him? Well, in this case, it might be surprising for those of us who have a discerning eye for spiritual things. 
I might just sound all prosperity gospel up in here. You know what happens? God is with them. And you know how we know God is with them? He succeeds and gains wealth and power and influence and responsibility. God was with him in such a way that he became a successful man. He accomplishes much. His accomplishments become so obvious that God's presence with him is even evident to his Egyptian master. The master saw this. It was clear that what was happening with Joseph was unlike anything that could be explained by human explanation. And I say this is odd because many of us have been taught, and I'm glad, our Bibles do not teach that if you just do the right thing, your life will be an endless string of successes forever. There is a prosperity gospel, a kind of idea that our hope is in one joy to the next, a candy cane lane type of spirituality that needs to be rejected. It's not promised. So let's all be clear on that. However, we should also be careful that we don't become such serious Christians who know the reality of suffering and the refinement of the Lord that we begrudge God when He blesses. Do you know that the Bible often proclaims that when God is with, things succeed? And sometimes that means wealth, and sometimes that means influence, and sometimes that means success. Sometimes your business will flourish because you're godly. That's an okay Bible statement to say. And you shouldn't be the kind of person who has to constantly apologize. You're not more spiritual if you create for yourself a stoic, morose life where you never smile. In fact, diligence, honesty, forward thinking, generosity, godliness, the Bible, in fact, promises. It's not even shy about rewards sometimes. And it seems as though the evidence of the Lord being with Joseph is he receives reward. This is Psalm 1 type of stuff. Those who are planted by streams of water, those who, those who commit to meditate in the law of the Lord, those who have a presence with Him, whatever they do, prospers. That's what we're seeing right here. It's so evident, so practical in the real world that Potiphar sees it and he says, well, what in the world? I could benefit from this. You can imagine in the circumstance. This means that when Joseph gets in charge of some crops, they grow tenfold. You put Joseph in charge of uh, the, the market, stealing goes down and sales go up. You put Joseph in, in charge of algebra, the kids get into Stanford. You, the sports teams in Egypt, Joseph runs them amazingly. All the, kid, the, the underachieving kids become all-stars. They win championships, they had no business winning. Joseph puts his hand to something and it just succeeds. There's evidence of God's blessing. Have you, ever been, have you ever been annoyed, I mean known someone like this? I said annoyed because, have you ever known someone where it just seems like everything they try, it works? It can be frustrating. It can also be amazing. Potiphar sees this with Joseph and he says, there's no other explanation than that God is with him and I can benefit from this. I will just say, that I do hope that you experience this in some... It's okay to pray for one another. I pray that you experience God's favor and His blessing. In fact, I think that's part of the hope of life, that all of us should at least at one moment feel like, when I put my hand to this, it gets better. You, can you think of something like that? When I explain the price is right, it gets better. Or whatever it is, whatever your area of expertise, you feel like, I can make a difference here. Well, it turns out with Joseph, everything that he does makes a difference to the point where his master says, I basically have a genie in a bottle and I can retire. Potiphar 
has, I don't even know what you'd call it, old world problems. You know what he worries about? What food to post on his Instagram. That's what it says. He has such a life of ease. You know the concept of first world problems? In other words, someone's complaining about something, and you say, oh, you have it so easy, you're complaining about that. Potiphar experiences the blessing of God through Joseph so much that he basically retires, and it says that his greatest worry when he wakes up in the morning is steak or sushi today. The Lord is with Joseph, and it's okay to say that he gave him success. There was earthly, temporal increase. Now, you say to yourself, well, this is the kind of God's presence that I can get behind. This is what I want forever. Well, when we introduce the next scene, when we see the idea here that this success does not insulate Joseph from one key thing, and that is temptation. The second scene shifts right in the moment, and I want you to notice this, right in the moment of success, right in the moment when the only thing that can be explained about his life is that God is with him and giving him favor, right when he has the greatest amount of responsibility, temptation comes. I think this is important to remember. For those of us who desire and want to control our lives and arrange our spirituality even in such a way that we completely insulate ourselves from being tempted from sin, we believe If I just schedule it right or get the right amount of sleep or talk to the right people or get the right experts or do the right Bible studies or if I just pray a certain amount, I'll never be tempted by sin again. That's my goal. I just want to skate between here and heaven, never doing anything wrong and never being tempted. That is a facade. It's the reason the Bible says things like we ought to gird up our loins in the pursuit of holiness. There's going to be a fight Joseph is getting acclaim. The Bible itself said that he is in God's presence. He has blessing, he has favor, and still temptation comes. It's one of the first lessons concerning temptation for us to learn from Genesis 39. Temptation will come to all of us. It cannot be avoided. Now, in this case, we see that the temptation comes in the form of the master's wife desiring him. That says in the sort of the middle of verse 6, before it goes to 7, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, some of us are saying, oh, come on. Remember when his brothers hated him? So, Joseph is someone who everything he puts his hand to succeeds, and he is fine. I mean, this is, this is high-level, high-level encouragement and acclaim if God goes out of His way to write down in His eternal Word forever that you are a good-looking person. I mean, you are good-looking. You are actually fundamentally as good-looking as a human can get. God stamps His approval on you and, in fact, explains your temptation by your looks. It also makes you think, well, of course his brothers hated him. Everything he did succeeded. The dad loved him, and he was good-looking. There's some people who just say, well, this is just unfair. And it's this set of circumstances that I believe teach us the second thing about temptation here. One, it cannot be avoided even in times of blessing. You can be doing everything right and having God's presence, and temptations will come. Two, temptations will come uniquely to your circumstances and the things that you are 
weak, have a weakness toward. And I say this because many of us could not recreate Joseph's opportunity to sin here. If you're going to let yourself off the hook with temptation and say, well, I'll never sin like this because this would never happen to me, you're maybe taking it too easy and you haven't learned a lesson. It is true that maybe you're not so God-ordained fine that women, powerful women are throwing themselves at you. This may be the case. And yet, the lesson from the earliest portion of Genesis is that sin is crouching at your door. Here's the funny thing about sin. In the moment of temptation and sin, it's oddly specific. Sin is not generically about anger in the moment that you're seething and want to punch someone. It's pretty specific. It's you in this moment for that thing, and here's what I'm doing. Sin becomes specific to your context. Joseph is going to have to face temptation in one of the most odd circumstances we can imagine. He is imprisoned as a slave under a master with a powerful wife, but a person of esteem and prospering with favor and responsibility, and now temptation comes. I want to say as well that because we've learned this, because temptation is universal even when you're doing what is right, and because temptation is specific to people, let me encourage us toward this. I think this is an okay takeaway. Perhaps we should be more gracious when we listen to the temptations and the struggles of other people's sins. Maybe we should be more gracious to realize, well, I'm not in their spot. Do you know what it's like to have someone throw themselves at you and give these opportunities? You don't know and I'd also say, let's, let's maybe be less proud about avoiding particular sins that others seem to struggle with. Maybe it's simply easier for you. Maybe that's an area that your specific context you've not been left weak to. But often what happens, and I'm just going to speak from experience here, often what happens is that I create a very specific list of sins, probably in a biased way, I have to include a couple that I might be prone to or else you guys think I'm lying, right? I have to be spiritual enough to put a couple of realistic sins on it. But for the most part, I may measure myself by a list of things that I know I pretty, much well, I pretty well have under control. And the moment that I do that, I can give myself two comforts. One, the comfort of pride and self-righteousness. I'm basically nailing this thing. I got this. Yeah, 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 some things are struggles, but at least I'm not. Insert unique temptation. That's the first comfort, comfort of self-righteousness. Second, I offer myself the comfort of judging others. Man, I knew I was doing a good job, but compared to them, I, it's even a bigger advantage. This does not mean that when we say we're gracious towards someone toward their temptation with sin, we say it's okay. Temptation is still temptation. We don't ever get a pass for dishonoring God, but we can acknowledge with one another that to be a human means we have different levels of desire and opportunities and problems. Successful people have challenges that come with success that you may never realize. Wealthy people have challenges and temptations that come with wealth that you may never realize. Good-looking people may have challenges and temptations with coming with being beautiful that you may never realize. People with 
abusive homes or families or broken back, back at brick, I can't speak that, broken backstories may have temptations that you will never realize. We call one another to holiness, but we can do so, I believe, graciously. So temptation is universal. It will come even in the moments of success. Then temptation is specific. And in this case, Joseph now has to gird himself up, and he becomes an a model to emulate in many ways. We do not begrudge God when He brings Joseph success, and Joseph cannot be surprised or angry at God when temptation comes. This is what it means to be a mature believer in the world. We don't begrudge God giving us good things. We also are not shocked or surprised when fiery trials come our way. This is the life we're living here and now under the sun. And so Joseph steadfastly endures temptation, and he does so with such humility and gratitude and concern that it is, a, it is a wonder, it's something to behold. I think there's a few keys to his enduring temptation. You might say to yourself, well, how can I do this? Here's a couple of things that come to mind. I note his condition of heart. If someone said to me, how can I avoid temptation and keep myself in a proper frame of mind, not letting my desires get out of control or addictions overcome, I would say the first thing is, Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. This is why the Bible insists on this over and over and over again. And here's a couple conditions of the heart that Joseph seems to have despite horrible circumstances. He is humble. He realizes the position that he is in has been given to him by God and by his master. He is not walking around on the earth saying, like, everybody better notice what I deserve. Look what I earned. He has a heart of humility. Humility will guard you from sin on many occasions. Second, he has a heart of gratitude. Not only does he realize it's been given to him, but he's thankful for it. He says, everything here is mine. I have what I need. Why would I need to grasp for more, the one thing kept from me? You know how many times sin, I'll just say it in my own heart, you know how many times sin in my heart is simply me excusing what I believe that I should have had and was withheld? Well, I mean, other people have it. I should have this anyway. So, guarding against temptation. Joseph has humility. He has gratitude. Second, he keeps in mind who sin is ultimately about. This is an amazing statement. He's echoing, and this is hundreds of years before. This is before his, his ancestors are going to even be born. The psalmist is going to cry out, Against you and only you have I sinned. And Joseph already knows this lesson. The wife wants to come, and even though it's true he would be sinning against the wife, she's asking for it to be sinned against, but he'd be sinning against her, be sinning against the master, he'd be sinning against himself. But ultimately, what does Joseph say? He remembers what are the stakes of sin. He said, why would I do this great wickedness and sin against God? To remember that all temptation to sin is ultimately about your relationship with your Creator. I believe will keep you from sin. Because here's the thing, many of us will be moved by a view of the holiness of God and our desire to fear Him and not not be hurtful to Him before we would ever fear hurting others. I don't know about you, but I'm usually more in tune and I don't want to be seen as someone who hates God, but I would let it slide on some people I don't like. I mean, this is, if it's just the person that I have a little bit of a grudge against, that's one thing but if I'm sinning against God, it's another. 
So Joseph has straight in his mind not only conditions of heart, humility and gratitude, but what is sin about? It's ultimately about offending God. And then finally, I would say this. I believe that Joseph, he seems to be well taught. How does he know this is wickedness? How does he know what is right and wrong? How does he know that sin is against God? In fact, I would say, how does he proclaim the story of his master giving him everything except for this one thing and wanting to avoid it? I mean, it seems to me like he's heard well the story of the Garden of Eden. He succeeds where Adam and Eve fail. Isn't that what you want to scream at Adam and Eve? He gave you everything but the one tree. Why need more? Joseph seems to be well taught to realize that what has been withheld from him, he cannot take unjustly. I would say if you really wanted to press it, he has been taught and prepared ahead of time with a worldview and an understanding of righteousness. The best time to prepare to endure against temptation for sin is not in the moment of temptation for sin. We will, in the quietness of our hearts, as we're being formed by Scripture, as we're presenting ourselves to God, as we're remembering who we are and committing ourselves, we pre-commit. This is what it looks like to endure temptation. We pre-commit to the kind of people that we're called to be and the things that we know to be true. And we rehearse those things so that in the moment that temptation comes, we simply say, okay, no, 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 I know about this one. He endures temptation, and I believe that God is with him to strengthen him against this temptation. Now, there's another category of what to do with temptation, but I think it bleeds into the next scene, the scene of betrayal. And that is, you know how often the Bible says, here's how you should deal with temptation when it gets really difficult. Run. Now, what happens with Joseph is here's a couple of problems. One, he has to do his job. He's placed in a, in a difficult circumstance. And two, it's persistent. I started with bad news by telling you no matter how easy you have it or how spiritual you are, temptation will always come. Here's the second portion of bad news as we shift to the next scene. It's going to keep coming. Do you feel the weight of that? Joseph, powerful woman, throwing herself at him, commanding of him, she uses language much like Judah did in chapter 38. It's not, it's not pleasant sort of courting. Would you court me and we could be married one day? This is pure desire and power. So he has to endure this one day, and then the Bible says in verse 10 that she spoke to Joseph day after day after day. I mean, do you feel that in your gut with your fight against sin? And if you don't have anything that comes to mind about the thing that you keep having to press back and beat back, then maybe you're not paying attention to sin enough. Do you feel the weariness of that? Oh my goodness, I just dealt with this sin last month. I thought I was over my anger. I thought I was over my greed. I thought I was over my envy and my jealousy. I thought I was over my lust. I thought I was over my attention-seeking. There's an exhaustion here, and Joseph is going to learn to sustain day after day after day. Ultimately, though, he has to enact the final way to get against temptation, and that is in verses 11 through 20, we see that he is betrayed. Eventually, it says, but one day, she comes and she just catches him. She finally overwhelms the situation. All of the, the other tools that he's had in his toolbox for enduring temptation no longer work. And so he does what Proverbs says to do. Run from the woman of temptation, Proverbs chapter 5. Don't put heaping coals into your lap. Maybe I could put it into the words of Jesus. You know, Jesus says sometimes you got to get drastic. Do your sins or do your eyeballs cause you to sin? Pop them out. 
Is your arm, hand causing you to sin? Cut it off. Timothy is told from the Apostle Paul, flee from evil. Second Peter tells us that we ought to run from the schemes of the devil. Sometimes we stay too close to our sins. Sometimes what we enjoy is getting as close as we can without stepping in. And there are moments when I've counseled or I've thought about my own heart and I've counseled with people and I've just thought to myself, well, have you tried rearranging your life? It's worth it. Sometimes it's worth it. And so Joseph, day after day, is enduring temptation. He's doing what is right. He finally gets to the moment where he realizes this. The only thing left to do is to dishonor God or run. He runs. He runs away. He hightails it out without his garment. I don't know. That's up to our imagination. I don't know what that means. He runs. Sometimes you have to be the person who makes drastic steps and it's going to seem like you're a psycho. What do you mean you can't and just fill in whatever else? Your friends who maybe don't have the same temptation or your other circumstance, they don't know the battle you've been fighting. They don't know when it's time for you to run. You need to be led by the Spirit of God, but sometimes you just run and you say, I don't even care. I'm leaving that behind. I'm just going. Joseph runs. It's in this scene, though, that he is betrayed once again. The Lord is with him even in his betrayal, but it is still betrayal. We get the story not once but twice of the sin of the wife accusing falsely Joseph and him having to endure the consequences. You can imagine that maybe he just got some breathing room. He hates being in Egypt. He doesn't know why he's there. He doesn't have all the comforts of home. Probably doesn't understand God's plan still, but he thinks at least I'm in charge of some stuff and I'm okay. Back to prison he goes. He endures betrayal, accusation, and has to sit idly by with his mouth shut, falsely accused. So you may say to yourself, okay, well, if it wasn't when he was betrayed by his brothers and sold off, and not the first time or the second time when he was sold off, not the times that he was under temptation day after day, and not the time when he's finally caught, but here, this must be when the Lord abandons him. This is evidence, finally. But instead, the scene shifts again. It tells us in verses 21 to 23 that it is then and there that the Lord sustains him. That God comes near in his moment of weakness when he is sinned against. When he is sinned against, the Lord is there with him to care for him, to show him, as the Bible says in verse 21, steadfast love, and he begins to have favor once again. The evidence here is more overwhelming even in the rest of the passage that God is the one who is acting. The words of activity here, you know, I said that Joseph is kind of in the Plinko board. What's amazing here is that nearly all the action words in Joseph's story, they're passive when it comes to him. This happened to him. They're active when it comes to God. The Lord showed him steadfast favor. The Lord was the one who was with him. The Lord was the one who gave him favor. And all of this happened. The keeper of the prison paid no attention, gave him more responsibility because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. Remember, the question of Joseph's story entirely is, who is responsible for this? 
Now, what we're going to learn over the chapters is that we have to, you have to have a theological category for what people have called maybe first and secondary causation, right? So humans have agency. What we do matters. God is never the author of sin. And yet, there's also a way in which God can work out the, the world where He is the ultimate actor. God is active. He is sovereign. He is guiding. God is with Joseph. Therefore, who can be against Him? Who can stay God's hand? Who can understand the inscrutable ways of a Creator who moves in spite of human sin? That's what's being pressed forward. So the Lord has been with him in success and in temptation and betrayal and now is sustaining him even on the other side of being sinned against. And all the while, Joseph, I believe, is a wonderful example. In the entirety of his story, it's been pointed out often that Joseph almost has a kind of pre-Christ-like story. He's a model almost. And sometimes I'm careful about these things. I don't want to find Jesus in in every circumstance if you have to shoehorn it. I think the whole Bible's about Jesus, but sometimes it's about you know, just the law or something to lead us to Him. The other thing I want to be careful about is that sometimes it's a temptation to make all the stories of the Bible moralistic. Just be like David. He stood up to giants. What are your giants? And I, of course, we want to avoid that kind of teaching as well. But can I for a moment make an exception? I think Scripture sometimes uses examples, and we should learn from these people. The book of Hebrews has a whole hall of faith. Learn from so-and-so, learn from them, learn from her. And I can say with confidence that I believe that there is just reasons, good reasons, to see in Joseph something to emulate and something that is modeled. I believe that we can learn from Joseph. He recognizes God's hand in his life. He trusts him despite unthinkable suffering and difficulty. He receives with joy the blessings that come, but does not use it as a way to excuse his sin when temptation comes his way. He girds up over time, over pressure for the long haul. He runs and makes drastic changes when he needs to. He silently endures being betrayed and sinned against by others without having to defend himself constantly. I think we can learn from Joseph. But ultimately, of all the times when people say they can see in Joseph a kind of precursor to Christ, I would say that we can learn from Joseph, but ultimately look to Jesus. Because sadly, the story of temptation for all of us is that we will fail. I come here every Sunday morning, and here's what I think. Okay, I'm a sinner, and I get to talk to a bunch of sinners. What do we do now? Here's how we look to Jesus. Joseph is a kind of a picture, at least in some ways you can see hints of it, Because Jesus is one who endured temptation through the entirety of his life. He knew temptation as we do, but was without sin. More than that, Jesus was one who was ultimately publicly betrayed and was forced to endure false accusation, taking on him the punishment of sins that were not his own in order to bring freedom and life. It's amazing is that the Potiphar's wife is proclaiming the sins of Joseph the whole while they're her sins. And yet Joseph suffers. And it's in this chapter, maybe of all of the chapters of Joseph's story, that we see and can remember we have a benefit. We don't have to live like Joseph lived and wonder what's coming next. We get to live in light of Christ. We can read the Bible backwards from right to left. 
And what we see is that in Joseph, there are the seeds of the glory of the coming of Jesus who will endure temptation on our behalf. And then more than that, he will look at sinners like you and me and say, you accused me, but I will be silent and I will take the punishment of your sins. That's why we can hope on a morning like this. Why would I keep talking as a sinner to a bunch of sinners? What good news is there in telling you, hey, are you guys tempted this week? Are you going to sin a whole bunch next week too? It's going to keep coming. How is this fun? It may not be fun, but it's hopeful because of what Jesus has done for us. I want to pray for us that our sins and our temptations get specific this morning. And ultimately that we learn from Joseph and look to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I ask that this story, as we read Genesis 39, I I pray, Spirit of God, would you convict us concerning sin and righteousness? What areas in our lives have we just made peace with and ignored? God, as we're tempted toward anger, help us. As we're tempted to lust, help us. As we're tempted toward envy and jealousy, help us. As we're tempted toward indifference and being unloving, God, help us. Tempted toward comfort at the expense of others, God, help us. As we're tempted toward laziness, God, help us. As we're tempted to be exhausted and give up and make excuses, God, sustain us. I pray that we'd be calling one another to holiness and life and righteousness, but to be gracious as we do so. So God, I pray that we'd learn from Joseph, but ultimately that we would have the hope that you've given us in Christ. Thank you for caring for tempted sinners like us. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and being tempted and for taking on the punishment for sin. We love you for this. And I pray that we would look to you in all things. We ask it in your name. Amen.